Hang in there. This is a long one. So this is Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me the wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressions your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, Father, when I first read this, I thought, okay, you wrote this about me, to me, for me. Although I've never killed anybody, maybe I've killed somebody's spirit. And in truth, we are all, everyone in this room, we're all sinners every day. We are so grateful for your forgiveness. All you ask is that we repent and be truly sorry, and you forgive us over and over and over again. We are so grateful for that. We pray this morning that Anthony will deliver your words in ways that will just imprint themselves into our clean and repentant hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thanks, Faith, for laying some groundwork for me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> so David um, has been so foolish, and now he is uh, so very brave in Psalm 51. And as we've read, as uh, Faith has read for us, in total transparency, he helps us see that the prayer and the practice of repentance is an absolute gift. The prayer and the practice of repentance is an absolute gift. And perhaps, because it is a difficult word to stomach from, from David, it is it's not easy. Um, and perhaps it needs a little con- con- convincing, I don't, I don't know. But the idea and execution of repentance is so near and dear to the Lord's heart um, 
um, that in terms of his, his public preaching ministry, the very first words to, to leave our Lord's lips. Perhaps you're familiar with Mark chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Interesting, that was his first word in his public preaching ministry. In his letter to the Romans, the apostle Paul further explains that repentance is a gift which is administered by God himself to his people, that it is in fact a gift. And basically what the Bible says, and I'm not going to necessarily make it a total case, but salvation, it cannot be discovered without it, and sanctification ceases when Repentance disappears from the daily rhythms of a Christian. Repentance, along with faith, is one of the wings which allows a Christian to sail and soar heavenward. The Bible makes a really big deal about this subject. And what's interesting is that some churches have actually opted to go the other way when talking about repentance. In fact, uh, they've opted to even, in some places, remove it out of their vocabulary altogether. Um, One very popular preacher, if I mentioned him, you would all know, um, said they've removed repentance from from their vocabulary because life is, I quote, hard enough. So why talk about other hard things? And, you know, in fact, many Christians, when the conversation around repentance comes up, you start doing a little bit of a PTSD-like, you know, twitch. Um, Sometimes there's the misdirect, right? You know, the topic of repentance comes up and, and it's like, oh, did you see the game last night? Did you, did you see uh, 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 apples are on sale, $2 a pound right now? Um, you know, it's a, just a misdirect. And often, it, it can also be downright offensive when the conversation comes up. It's like, it's like the whole, what you talking about, Willis? Like, I don't have any problems, right? Don't talk to me about this. Like I said, perhaps you're having a little bit of PTSD popping in your hearts right now because you're like, the preacher's going to talk about repentance and he's going to start, he's going to pull out his little hanky and really start preaching some hellfire brimstone and I'm going to just feel so terrible about myself by the time I leave church today. Well, let me just tell you, I'm going to be as gentle as I possibly can be, okay? I'm going to be gentle, as kind, and true, and biblical as I possibly can be. So, in order to keep myself focused and on the rails and within parameters, biblical parameters, we're going to just talk about three things today, or I'm going to talk about three things today. Um, one, what is repentance? Uh, two, why is it so difficult to embrace? And three, what is on the other side of it? Okay, so what is repentance? Why is it so difficult to embrace? And what is on the other side of it? Well, what is it? Well, why don't we start with um, a definition. In his book, Doctrine of Repentance, the Puritan Thomas Watson, who is most notable for uh, uttering the line, till sin be better, be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. He writes, 
that repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. I think it's a really solid definition. Repentance is a, is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. In other words, God gets into you, shows you who you really are, and radically changes your life. That's what the gift of repentance is. In steps one through four of AA, they call this making a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, admitting to God, to ourselves, and to other human beings the exact nature of our wrongs, being entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. What, real, what repentance really, really is, is an excavation of the heart. If you can imagine Elon Musk bringing his boring company into your heart, it's like inviting God to drill into places, drill down into places that you normally would prefer people stay out of. In fact, you normally prefer that your own self would stay out of these places. And for me, for me, perhaps the most effective and terrifying metaphor employed by an author to explain repentance comes from uh, C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And he simply has one word. He calls it an undragoning. An undragoning. I love that picture of Eustace trying to peel off all the scales. And, and, he, and he can do only so much, right? He can only do so much. It isn't until Aslan, it isn't until Christ comes and, and goes deeper than Eustace could have ever imagined, going deeper to the place that, that, that really no one has ever touched before. But undragoning, it's a shedding of scales, Ugh. right? Ugh. It's a shedding of scales. So repentance, what it is, is a perfect purge. God getting into the nitty-gritty of our lives in order to remove the sin which is making us sick and ultimately bringing us death. So it's a perfect purge. And so, if it is a good gift from God and will bring us health, then why is it such a difficult practice to embrace? Well, because we are blind to sin. And if we see some of our sin, we certainly never see all of our sin. And uh, this is definitely the case for David in Psalm 51 and in the backdrop for Psalm 51. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, uh, we get the... The, the sad evidence that this is all so true about David. And hopefully today I'll be able to convince us that this is true about all of us. You see, the story begins in 2 Samuel by telling us that while his men were off uh, fighting a battle with the Ammonites, David was at home chilling. I don't, know, I don't know why, but he was at home chilling. One late afternoon... He's there hanging on his, his deck, and while he's on the balcony, he witnesses a beautiful woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. Seized by lust, David sends a servant to retrieve her that he might 
ultimately have his way with her. And he did. The text tells us he did. He also impregnated her and therefore implemented uh, a nefarious plan to um, cover it all up. And it's a doozy. If you're familiar with the story, it's a doozy. First, he calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from the battle for a little R&R. David imagines um, that his, uh, in, his indiscretion would be a simple fix. Just Uriah would come home, get a warm meal, take a, take a bath, and enjoy his wife. And the next time he comes home uh, f- from fighting for his people, he would have an explanation for why his wife was pregnant. David, uh, however, he seriously underestimates Uriah Uriah, being a man possessing more integrity than David at this time, refuses to go home to be with his wife. And here's the reason. Uriah couldn't imagine enjoying R&R while the rest of his brothers were off fighting a battle with the Ammonites. He couldn't imagine, imagine that. So he doesn't go home. Flummoxed by this, David proceeds to up the ante. On the second evening, David invites Uriah to his own home and gets him drunk. And he thinks that inebriation will be the proverbial chink in the armor of Uriah. But surprisingly, Uriah stands firm in his, in his, in his thought process, in his heart, and in his integrity. Even intoxicated, he has more integrity than David and doesn't go home. He sleeps it off at the servants' quarters, and the following day, he heads back to his army's encampment. Out of clever ideas, David shifts his sneaky scheme to outright brutality. Through a courier, he gets a letter to Job, his general. In the letter, Job is instructed to place Uriah with the men at the front of the battle and await when the fighting is at its most intense. And in this moment... When it's most intense, he's ordered to draw the, the, the soldiers back so that Uriah will be swallowed up in the heat of battle and die. And Job did just as he was ordered. Uriah died, and David's conundrum is apparently solved. David um, was even kind enough to throw Bathsheba a bone and invite her up to live at his place. All this greatly, greatly displeased the Lord. The story tells us that time passed, enough of it for Bathsheba to bear a son, and life had seemingly gone back to normal when one day Nathan, a prophet and a friend of David, pops in to pay his pal a visit. Nathan, he comes to him, And he shares a story with David that greatly disturbs the king. He explained that there were two men, one rich, one poor, in a certain city. The rich man possessed many flocks and herds, and the poor man only had the resources to to have one little baby ewe lamb. Nathan describes the poor man as holding the lamb in his arms, feeding it his meager morsels and allowing it to drink from his uh, cup. 
treating the animal, as the text says, like a daughter. This little lamb was like family to David. It's crazy, but it makes sense. Now some of you pet owners make sense to me. I would never understood that, but now it makes sense. It's a little interesting, but anyway. Um, then one day, uh, he says, the guest came to visit the rich man. Unwilling to sacrifice an animal out of his own herd, he took the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it in order to feed his visitor. Upon hearing the story, David is outraged. And I want you to read his words. There will be up there for you on the screen. He, tell, he looks at Nathan and he says, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And let that sink in. Let that settle in for a second. Because when that sunk in and settled in in that moment, David look, or Nathan looked at David and he said, You... You're that guy. You are that man. In that moment, David was finally able to see his sin. The backdrop of Psalm 51 is helpful and fascinating because it tells us David was actually blind to everything that was going on. Sure, he understood that the incident needed to be covered up. There was was some degree of to this situation. And I think it's really worth mentioning that real repentance takes place when the Holy Spirit is present and when people have true community. That's what the story tells us, that it's a necessity. necessity. The Holy Spirit's presence and the right people around you is important for repentance and that process. And so we need to ask ourselves, who am I actually listening to? And what kind of friends am I actually surrounded by? What, what actually speaks into my life? What do, what do I listen to? What do I hear? What do I receive and take in as truth? And then what kind of friends am I surrounded by? I think we'd be wise to embrace the perceptiveness of the proverb which explains, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I'd rather have a, a friend who will, who will stab me in the chest with love, hopefully, um, than, 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 um, you know, than an enemy who will whisper all these sweet nothings that I would love to hear and scratch my itching ears and dark heart. But the biggest lesson, it's not necessarily about that. The biggest lesson I think we take away from Psalm 51 is the gift for those of us who think we see so clearly. I think that's really the gift of Psalm 51. It's for those of us who think we see things so clearly, like we totally get it. And I have to admit um, that I'm one of those people. John is in the back giggling 
but he can attest because he's he's one of my best friends. Um, he's a good buddy. He knows me. I I'm I'm pretty sure pretty sure I know what's going on most of the time. I, I'll admit that I, I think I see everything so clearly. But here's the, here's where I, I get to invite you all into the process. I think I believe we're all those people. I, bl- I believe we all. In our way, however that comes out, you know, in our way, we, we're all those people. Humanity, in fact, I believe, is blind to sin and certainly blind to some degree of sin. This, uh, depending on what you believe, can be rather offensive, but the idea is actually explained by the doctrine of total depravity, meaning humanity as a whole is subject to sin. The doctrine is plainly explained in scriptures. Jeremiah 17, 9 is probably the one most people go to when they talk about this doctrine. And it just it simply says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And here's the kicker. Who can understand it? In other words, Jeremiah is saying that we're sinful and, and, and really sinful but we don't even know the half of it. We don't even know the, the half of it. It's crazy. And then Jesus, um, who amplifies the law, and amplifies uh, uh, the ethics and our moral understanding, he, he in Mark 7 says, it is for, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, uh, wickedness, Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus says it comes from us inside, comes from within. Unfettered self-regard, sin runs deep in humanity. That's what scripture tells us. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, explains that this problem can actually be traced all the way back to Adam, who has been passing this crushing covenant to every generation throughout all of human history, saying, sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to tell you this thing is fair. Uh, it's just what it is. In fact, David touches on this in his prayer of repentance in verse 5 when he cries out, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Saying from the very beginning, the moment we suck in uh, some oxygen into our lungs, uh, we, we are in desperate need of, of God's redemption over our life. And this is, I, I, and this is no joke. Uh, when I held both of my brand new baby boys in my hands, I said, you are a sinner and you need a savior. His name is Jesus and he will provide all the rescue you need. And that's not a joke. I, I literally did that with, with both. And I think it took... I, I think it took, maybe. <laughs> we're, we're still on the fence. <laughs> mm. 
The doctrine of total depravity and original sin is a difficult thing to stomach and process. I get it. But I believe, one, it is, as uh, G.K. Chesterton explains, the only doctrine that's been empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. In other words, there's so much evidence. You can always validate it when you look at the world around you. And number two, the only thing that explains the, it's the only thing that seemingly uh, explains the unsolvable problem with the suffering in the world. In fact, Herman Bavink He, writing on the subject, he explains that the smoking gun is not actually in the hands of God, which a lot of people accuse him of holding. Um, Here's what he says. He says, it's fascinating. I think it's so eloquently put. The the appalling misery of the human race can only be explained as a punishment upon sin. How can God, who certainly is good and just, subject all humans from their conception onto sin and death if they are completely innocent? An original moral debt must rest upon all. There is no other way to understand the crushing yoke that weighs upon all the children of Adam. Isn't that compelling? I don't know where you land on this conversation, but it's certainly compelling. And this is heavy. Heavy but helpful, and here's the point. And this is all we're trying to get to when we understand the text this morning, is is that God wants us, and we need to, see our sin in order to get to an end of our self. We need to. We need to see our sin so we can get to the end of our self. It is a necessity to see that at every layer and at every level of our lives, we need rescue from God. What David in Psalm 51 shows us is that we are blind to this, and even if we do actually see something, we certainly never see the scope of our desperate circumstances. And this, of course, is why real repentance is such an elusive prayer and practice to embrace, because we're working against ourselves. However, if grace is embraced and we see our need, then we will also see the beauty on the other side of it. So let's talk about that for a moment. Because what we see, the beauty we see on the other side of things is namely the depth of rescue and the beautiful hope that God provides in the practice and the process of repentance the good gift that is given when we are honest and let him have his way in our hearts. In verses 1 through 7, David, in the very beginning of his prayer, he can finally see. And that's the gift. He was blind, but now he sees. It's kind of the story of salvation. It's kind of the story of what it means to understand the gospel. But he can, he can finally see. And what's good is that he's finally fully self-aware and this is truly liberating for him because when he can see what he does is the thing he he needed to do for a long time and what what we need to do every day of our lives he he finally realizes he needs to lay his life at the mercy of God you know as autonomous 
creatures that we are, we love this um, illusion that we're in control of everything. We, 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 we love to, this thought and this idea that we are in charge and making all these decisions and, and, and controlling it. But what God is, the gift that he's trying to give us is that he wants us to lay our life down to understand we're at his mercy. And therefore, at his mercy and his care, not fretting over trying to put all the chess pieces in the right place. But he lays himself completely at the mercy of God because he's finally and fully owned his sin. And that's when you, that's when you know you really understand repentance. You, you, you stop making excuses. Seeing that the problem has always been himself all along, as Abraham Cho explains, there is and now finally is an answer to the predicament of self. See, with ourselves, we have, we have a, a predicament embedded within. But with the goodness and the grace of God and a true understanding of what this all looks like in life, we finally have an answer for the predicament of self. And for David and for every predicament the people of God have ever found themselves in, he shows us that the solution is squarely located in the steadfast love of God. David, as we talked about earlier, in Adam, is plagued with a crushing covenant. But he has also been issued, and he remembers this in repentance, he's also been issued a perfect covenant of love from his God. And he declares it. He, he recognizes it, and he embraces it, and he holds on to it. The steadfast love of the Lord, which never comes to an end, Right? The steadfast love of the Lord, which never comes to an end. It's this perspective which gives him hope. You see, what David has done, what we need to do, is we need to always, and here's, here's the tension for the Christian life, is remembering who we are always. And in the same breath, always remembering who God is. We have to do both. Because if we forget who we are, then we, you know, we can get all out of whack and wonky. And anyway, I don't want to get into that so much. But that's, that's the challenge of the Christian life, is remembering who we are, who we truly are, and remembering who God is. No matter how much success, no matter how much failure, et cetera, et cetera, remembering who we are, remembering who God is. And what's, what's incredible is David is on this path of repentance, and he doesn't even know what we know today. Paul, explaining the significance of Christ's sacrifice, the, the completion of God's steadfast love for, for the life of, of humanity, he states it further in Romans 5, 17 and 18. He says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, because we're talking about Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And here's his point. He says, therefore, as, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And that is the tension that we're understanding as Christians. 
This is the covenant love and the rescue that God provides his people. Additionally, David, turning to the Lord, has rediscovered a pathway for healing, renewal, and true transformation. Because of the steadfast love and the mercy of God, he believes God will purge him and wash him whiter than snow. God will blot out his transgression and mend his bones. And God will, in fact, create a clean heart for and renew a right spirit within him. And then finally, this is perhaps my favorite part of the psalm because it's the, it's the part that changed my life as in pastoral ministry. It actually shaped the way I would preach, pastor, and love people for the rest of my life is, is what David discovers actually blesses God's heart in verses 16 and 17 of the psalm. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. For you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Brothers, sisters, my friends, what God wants in a people is brokenness. He wants us broken. Why? Well, let me read what Charles Spurgeon says, because he's way smarter than me. He says, A broken heart cannot keep secrets. Now is all revealed. Now its essence goes forth. Far too much of our praying and of our worship is like closed up boxes. You cannot tell what's in them. But it is not so with broken hearts. When broken hearts sing, they do sing. When broken hearts groan, they do groan. Broken hearts never play at repenting, nor play at believing. With broken hearts, the hymn is a real hymn. The prayer is a real prayer. The hearing of sermons is earnest work, and the preaching of them is the hardest work of all, and I can agree with that. Oh, what a mercy it would be if some of you were broken all to pieces. There are, there are many flowers that will never yield their perfume till they are bruised. And I know it's so antithetical to the human nature and spirit, right? Bruised? Broken? Beat up? Challenged? Suffer? Hurt? Anguish? No. There's got to be a credit card that I can put all that on and pay later. But it is so true it takes a crushing to extract the oils and the, the beautiful scent that is in the, that flower. But it takes an honesty about us to, to let God do that deep work within us. And isn't it a shame when we ourselves, we, we refuse it and we and refuse to let God do the work that he wants to do in us because we're saying that will hurt too much. It just hurts too much, so I'll just ignore it. And so let me close with a question, a quote, and a prayer. And then, and then, you, can, and then you're, you can stop suffering now. <laughs> The question, I thought about this for a while, but I just want, want one that's really connected to the text. 
One, am I being willfully blind? That's a hard question to answer. (laughs) But am I being willfully blind? As we consider David and all the tragedy in his life, as we think about the suffering and pain that we, that we um, inevitably even create for ourselves, my friends, brothers, and I say this to myself, please don't wait for your sin to blow up on yourself and to blow up on others. Just bring it to the Lord. Just, just bring it to him. One more really cool quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Oh, dear children of God, scorn your sins, lament your sins, weep over your sins, indulge that feeling, and God will accept it when it is mixed with faith in his dear son. For the sacrifices of God, that is, all sorts of sacrifices put together on, um, put together sin offerings, burn offerings, peace offerings, scapegoat, and altogether the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. One broken spirit is worth them all. A broken and a contrite heart. uh, Though there be um, but one such, O God, thou wilt not despise. And a prayer. May we pray this earnestly together this morning. Please if you, if you long for this, pray it with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of repentance And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would help us to not be afraid, to be brave and trust you in the path that leads to perfect and complete restoration. God, we understand that we are uh, desperately broken and, and desperately in need. But God, we thank you because we know that in your Hesed love, your loyal love, your steadfast love, you are good and unchanging. So it is to you we turn, it is to you we trust, and uh, we pray for grace to see the beauty of the cross and, and that we would embrace the power of the resurrection as we understand ourselves before you, a holy God. So Lord, have mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.